Well, we are going to finish up 1 Samuel tonight, and um, it's probably, I should mention, that there really is no such book as 1 Samuel. It's just Samuel, and they're really all together, one, one book. Um, the English divides them into two different stories, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but it really just bleeds right into, right into the next one. So you'll find David is made aware of things that happen in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and things like that. So it's really just, it's one book. So it's kind of an arbitrary division here that we're getting to the conclusion of, but it feels like a conclusion nonetheless. And so we're going to treat it as such. Um, but you'll remember just a few things in review from, from last week. The Philistines had, had really gathered together at Aphek. They're going to march up into battle against the Israelites, and they're going to do some, some damage there. And David had been playing this sort of, really, he kind of had to play this sort of political game of appeasing the Philistines on the one end to try to make it so that they wouldn't kill him and that he could live amongst them, or at least in their area, uh, without them lashing out in retaliation. And then also not making it appear to his Jewish brothers that whom he's about to be king over that he was a traitor and was going in with the Philistines. And so he had to be very careful about how he did this. And so uh, at the time when battle came, Achish, the king of the Philistines, or king of Gath, who had come to trust David quite a lot, uh, obviously recruited him into battle. He was going to come into battle with him. And it turned out that the Lord spared him from really having to do much there because the other Philistine leaders were like, no, I don't think so. David was dismissed, and he was like, okay, shucks, you know, and has to go back home. And, uh, and so that's where we left David. He was on his way back home. And then on the, on the other side of that, there's Saul, who was king over Israel, and he was nervous about, you know, first of all, the death of Samuel had occurred, and he didn't have any really good answer or any peace about the battle that he was going into, and Samuel always provided that for him. And so he, in desperation, goes to consult that which should not ever be consulted, which was a, a medium or a witch at Endor. And so he sneaks off to Endor under cloak and dagger in the cover of darkness and asks this witch to conjure up Samuel from the dead, and she does. And Samuel comes up. It terrifies her, uh, and, it, and it terrifies Saul as well. And Samuel explains unequivocally, uh, you know, you, this is kind of the, this is one piece of evidence and a, a whole heap of evidences of why you're going to lose the kingdom, and rightfully so, and why it's going to be given over to David. And tomorrow in battle, you, Saul, and your sons are going to die. And Israel is going to lose that battle. And so, for some reason, I guess compelled by the Lord, I'm not sure, Saul decides to go into battle anyway. Uh, but whatever, he does. Uh, and so, Saul, um, so he, Saul has this, uh, this, um, this confirmation that that's what's going to happen. And so we pick up the story there, and what we're going to see tonight, we, we've really been seeing this for some time now. In fact, probably all the way back about, oh, 1 Samuel 15 or so, we start to see parallels between Saul and David. But they are two tracks that run side by side in the opposite direction. And so you see David going one way and the Lord protecting his way. And you see Saul going the other way into destruction. And we're going to see that in the climax of this story or the, the conclusion of this part of the story in 1 Samuel where it, it will eventually end in, uh, in, in Saul's death. But you'll notice that the way David, things, the things that happen to David end up going quite the opposite. And it just serves as evidence of the fact that the Lord is the one working behind the scenes. But then David also is going to do, do a couple of things in this story that give you real insight into where his faith really is and what it means that David is a man after God's own heart. And so uh, we pick up the story there. David is dismissed by the Philistines and he goes back to Ziklag. So he's coming back home where his wife and kids are and he finds in, at Ziklag that his, the whole city is in ruins. Uh, everything is in ruins. In fact, 
not only is everything in ruins, but the entire population is gone. Everybody, all the people that were there that they had left were gone. Uh, David's family is taken, and all of them have been captured by the Amalekites. Now, the problem with all of this is, of course, when you come back and realize that there is an army that's taken them, perhaps you know the army, perhaps you don't, the, uh, that's only half the battle. The other part of the battle is figuring out where they went, right? <laughs> you know, so in le- you don't have any probably dogs, I'm assuming, that can sniff them out, and so dogs are unclean animals anyway. So you, you, uh, you don't have any, any, any tricks of the trade like that, and so you don't really know what to do. So let's, let's take a look at the start of this story in 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 8. Somebody read that for me in your uh, verse packet. All right, so uh, David inquires of the Lord, and the Lord grants him the authority to do it and tells him it's going to be successful. You already see a difference between David inquiring of the Lord here and Saul inquiring through the witch at Endor of Samuel whether or not this is going to be effective after the Lord refuses to answer Saul. Remember, that was the reason Samuel, uh, Saul went to the witch at Endor to begin with, was that the Lord had flatly refused to give him an answer one way or the other. And so he, he pursued the witch. Now David seek, uh, calls Abiathar, gets the ephod, seeks of the Lord whether or not he is to pursue. And remember, we talked about the, uh, the Urim and the Thummim, the, basically the, the dice that give you the yes or no answer kind of thing that are, that's answers from the Lord. Uh, he's casting lots, as it were, and he, he, he gets the answer that he should go and he should pursue. So the Lord is answering David, the, even though the Lord refuses to answer Saul. Um, when he does get an answer, it is yes, you will be successful. When Saul does get an answer from Samuel, it is no, you will die and your sons will die with you. Uh, so quite the opposite direction both of these two are running. So David, David takes off, and he, he takes off with 600 men, and after being on the road for some time, they're searching for four days, and they uh, eventually 200 of the men that were in David's party say, you know what, we're tired, and we're, we're just not, we don't think we can make it uh, all the way over there, so at, Besor, at the Besor Ravine, they drop out and they just say, we're going to chill here. And if y'all scare them out this way, we'll fight them, I guess. But just take off without us. And so the 400 of David's men go across the ravine. 200 stay behind. And the 400 go out looking for um, this, this person. And, and um, along the way, they actually get a lot of help. Some divine favor comes their way. But before we get into that, I want to show you the, a little map here. Let me get my laser pointer out for you. Um, oh boy, uh, maybe, do I, do I not have it? Um, oh, here, wait, no, that's chapstick. Sorry, wait, there it is, I found it, all right, got it, got it, chapstick wouldn't help me at all, you know, uh, so we've got Ziklag is where David is, the Amalekites are down here, um, they're hunting around for four days, there's Beersheba, which is a, a, a famous town, so they, they come back through here. And this is where they eventually stop, and the 200 men are going to hang out here while David and the rest of the men go over here looking for the Amalekites. This is the, uh, the Besor Ravine is a place that you can actually go to today. 
and this is what it looks like. This is not a picture I took. This is a picture I took from Google. Uh, but uh, with that bridge there, you got to wonder why the, why the men weren't just like, let's just cross it. It's not a big deal, you know. Uh, but no, um, obviously that's, that's a new bridge. I would imagine the water was probably up to here back in David's day, if I had to guess. But uh, this is the ravine that's still there today, to this day. Um, so they, they, they stop there, and they get some divine favor. They find this guy on the, on the way who actually was with the Amalekites and knew of their activities. He was an Egyptian man, and I, I, I gave you more than you were supposed to get. You were only supposed to, you were only supposed to get that one. Cheaters. Bunch of cheaters. Uh, so... Um, so basically, they found this Egyptian as they crossed, and they, uh, they took him in. He was dehydrated. He hadn't eaten for three days. He hadn't drank anything for three days. And so he was quite happy to see somebody coming to him right before he died, obviously, um, that was going to give him provisions of water and food. And once they had fed him and nourished him back to health, they asked him if he would help them out, if he knew where the Amalekites were. And he was like, oh, yeah, I happened to be with them, and they ditched me. So... Uh, I mean, obviously, this is just luck, right, that David and his men fell into these guys? I don't think so. Um, this is what we call divine appointment uh, or uh, some provision that the Lord is giving to David and his men as they find this guy, and he's willing to play along and, and help them out as much as he possibly can. Look at 1 Samuel uh, 30, 9 to 15. Who will read that for me? So David said, <laughs> Is this your sister or your wife? I'm, I'm just... <laughs> oh, man. So the Egyptian wants immunity. This, is, this dates all the way back. This is thousands of years old. Okay, so the Egyptian wants immunity. David offers him immunity. And once he gives it to him, he's like, hey, I'll snitch on these guys. They left me behind. And so, um, so basically David and his men take the information that the Egyptian gives to him, and they go and overtake and decimate the Amalekites and recover all of their loved ones. And all of their loved ones were unharmed. That cannot be underscored enough in the text that David recovers wife and families of all of his men and the people that were there. All of them are unharmed. In fact, the people that the Amalekites that they go to attack are celebrating and they're having a big old happy time. And David and his men are kind of watching the celebration going on. And, and obviously they know that the Lord has given them into their hands. And so they kind of sneak attack and, and kill all these men and, and, uh, and end up taking, uh, taking back their families completely unharmed, which is not the fate that we're going to see of Saul, obviously, here in just a little bit. But um, uh, spoiler alert. Uh, so David and, and, and all of them get their family back. And then we get to this this. Uh, thing that I've alluded to a couple of times or talked about a couple of times, but David takes all of the spoils that were that were that they gained from the attack of the Amalekites. In fact, all of the spoils that they had gained from their raids for since he'd been down with the Philistines, and they begin dividing them up amongst all of the people in their band, and then not only amongst their people, but then they also send them back to the elders at Judah. 
And there's a reason why they're doing this. David considers them brothers. It even says in the text that he considers them brothers. Um, these people that are familiar to him, he's not with the Philistines. That we say, I say again, that even though he has tried to place kind of a political game, he is not at all, his allegiances are not at all with the Philistines. And he's making sure that the elders of Judah understand that fact very well. That, that he, is leader, he is going to be their leader. He is with the Jews. He is a Jew, and he is on the run, not by his own choice. And so he, sent, he sends all this back. Now, this is not the, the best part of the story, but uh, it is something we need to read. Let's look at 1 Samuel 30, 16 to 20, and then 26 to 31. Who will read that? David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether, uh, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spool or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spool. Now 26 to 30. When David came to Ziklag, he, he sent, sent part of the spool to his friends of the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spool of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the, of the Negev and Jatir and Aor and Sipmoth and Estiomeh. Nice. And, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, and I don't know about that one, and Ahok, and Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Awesome. That was good. Hey, see, that's the thing. If you just go into it and you just, you just say it, doesn't matter if you leave out letters, nobody else going to correct you because they don't want to have to do it. So... <laughs> Yeah, you just just keep on reading, man. Yeah. <laughs> just, you just you, you know the thing. Oh. So <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, David obviously keeps him all unharmed. You'll notice that in verse twenty six that he sent part of the spoil to who his friends the elders of Judah, saying here. So the author makes it clear that what David, how David sees uh, this whole relationship is sort of a ruse that he's been playing with the, uh, the Philistines in order to stay alive. Now, the most interesting part of this story, though, is what happens between David and the 400 men that go with him to, to take the Amalekites versus the 200 men that stayed behind. Um, the 400 men that go with him, they propose this form of justice, or what they think, what looks, or what appears, I guess, to them as justice, that they would get all the spoils and that the 200 that were left behind at the brook, since they didn't help, they can have their family, but they don't get anything else. And it seems as though that is more of a greedy position than it is a just position. And so what you'll see is that David, um, David's men proposes this and uh, that they, so that, oh, I already got plunder up there. Okay. So that they, 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 the 200 men across the river won't get any, their hands on any of the plunder that the Israelites had taken from the Amalekites. But David flatly refuses. Basically, all, four, all 600 men are going to get all that the 400 men collected. Now, at first, we, we might, I don't know, we might see what the 400 are saying, right? I mean, like, I, 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 I get it. I mean, the 400 aren't saying, let's go kill the 200, or anything like that. They're not proposing any kind of, you know, retaliation against them like that. They're just saying, you know, hey, we fought. So, you know, it's ours, right? 
And you, you have to remember that part of the incentive of fighting in the army is that you collect the plunder. So that's less the case today. In fact, I don't know that that is the case at all today, but uh, Sean Mobs could probably tell us a little bit better than... <laughs> yeah, legally, it's, yeah, it's probably not legal. Uh, but do, do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's definitely some other political games, sure, that go into it. But, um, but you know, back then, that's part of the incentive to fight in the, in the military, is that when you go and fight, you risk your life, and there's a reward on the back end of that. Which, if you dig all the way back in your memory, back to when there was uh, the harem that was going on, when they were moving into the land with Joshua, and all, all, all of them taking over the land of Canaan, and they had to burn everything to the ground... That is a sacrifice to the Lord. And he didn't require that in every city. He required the, the people be punished, but he didn't always require all of the spoils also be burned, except in the first couple of places he did require it, and in some places thereafter. And so that is a big sacrifice for the army to say, here is all this gold and all these possessions and all these animals that we could eat and all this. There's tons of things here that we could become rich off of and we have to burn it all to the ground. That's a dedication to the Lord. Now they come into the Amalekites and they get to take all the spoils and they've got 200 men that didn't even help and they're sitting across the river. Okay. I can kind of see what they're saying, right? I think we all could. It's not, we're not faulting them for that. Uh, but David flatly refuses. In fact, David is going to make it a policy from here on out that, uh, that the military, the whole military gets whatever is, is taken by the people. Uh, whenever we go out into war, whatever is taken, uh, is split amongst all the men, not just, you know, the ones that went and fought. Um, now, we look at that and we go, well, well, what's going on in David's head? Why is that? How is that fair? Yeah, well, not just fair, but how does that motivate anybody to fight? I'd be sitting back in the barracks going, y'all go ahead. I got a little cold. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead. But, but you know, we don't really know the reason why the 200 stayed. They said they were tired. They said they were tired. But they everybody was tired. They, yeah, four days of hiking yeah. and you know, they were, they were tired. Now, we don't know. Maybe they had been doing some things before then. Uh, James and then Jeannie. Also, a bigger, I mean, a age would be a factor there. So maybe they were older. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the 200 were a little older, Jeannie. Yeah, yeah, they had a little bit more endurance. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's possible the two hundred were uh, maybe they didn't have any family. Maybe it was just they were single guys. Who knows? You know, or maybe they were like uh, they can have her. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were thinking that, David. I'm teasing. Oh, 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 yep, yep, yep. But don't, you can't spoil the ending for me, David. <laughs> I'm, I'm building something here, David. No, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so then we have to ask, what is it that causes David uh, to do this? First, before we do that, let's read the passage where David refuses. Look at 21 through 25. Somebody read that for me. Well, I guess I have to read it. <laughs> Go ahead. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left in the brook Peshaw. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David the worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. For what the Lord has given us, 
preserved us and given us into our hand the band that came with us. Who would listen to you in this night? Or is his share? For as his share, if he goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made of the statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So the whole band gets the spoil, not just the ones that went. Now, this is going to underscore part of what makes David a man after God's own heart. David's theology determines his viewpoint. Who is the one that motivates the heart of the men of Israel to go and fight? Is it David? Is it the spoils of war? Is it... uh, something that they could gain, some, rich that, some richness that they could gain? Who is it that is going to drive out the enemy before Israel? It's the Lord. So David, it seems, doesn't feel like he's going to lose anything in terms of motivation, in terms of fighting men. He's not going to lose anything by being gracious. In fact, what, we're gonna, what we see is a difference here in a theology of grace versus the troublemaker's philosophy of works. It's a theme that runs throughout the entire course of Scripture. One who believes that Yahweh provides everything and the other believes I provide everything. The one that believes the Lord provides everything is going to trust that he's going to work a lot of stuff out. The one that believes I provide everything is going to demand that what I earned, I get. What I fought for, I get to keep. And so we see a difference between David and his men. David remains unfazed by 200 men staying back with the luggage. Because he knows that Yahweh is the one that gives them victory. So whether David ends up taking one man with him, we saw that with Jonathan, didn't we? Just a few chapters ago, Jonathan goes, let's see if the Lord gives these uncircumcised Philistines into my hand when he takes just he and his armor bearer up on top of the hill and God causes an earthquake, causes confusion amongst them and they kill them all right there on top of the hill. So David knows whether I take one person with me or whether I take a whole army of men with me, this is the Lord's war that I'm fighting These are his spoils. They're not mine. Um, This is going to be a theme that actually runs throughout the entire New Testament where it forms a picture for us of the difference between worship and idolatry. This is a a quote from uh, Ralph Davis who has written a really great and very accessible commentary on 1 Samuel that I would highly recommend. Um, it, I said Ralph Davis, didn't I? I think it's Dale Davis. Dale, it may be Dale Ralph Davis, actually. <laughs> Maybe both, but Dale Davis, he wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel. Uh, I, had, I included it in the bibliography that I put out a few weeks ago. Um, so you can look in there if you still have that. If you don't, let me know. Send me an email or something, and I can, send you, I can tell you what book it is. But it's a commentary on 1 Samuel. It's very accessible, it's, so it's not... Uh, not super difficult to read at all. In fact, it reads a lot like a, like a book. It, he basically just takes what's going on in, the, in 1 Samuel and gives it to you in sort of uh, layman's terms and helps explain a lot of the deeper complex things that are going on. Very good, and he even has a lot of really good devotional insight. And so I've taken this, um, this quote with just a few changes. Just I changed some words to make it a little simpler to read. Uh, but... Uh, a really, really good uh, picture here. It's a picture of the difference between worship and idolatry. The man inebriated with the thought that all he has is Yahweh's gift finds himself repeatedly on his knees adoring, thanking, and praising. But if he does not grasp grace, he plummets into idolatry. For that is the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. That goes along with what he preached. 
This, is, this, is, this underlines Christian worship. This is the fundamental premise here. That's the reason I included the whole quote, because this is the, the fundamental premise of Christian worship, why we worship the way we do. Why do we spend time in worship uh, first calling everyone to remember who God is? Why do we spend time in worship reading the word so that we might adore God? Why do we spend time confessing our sins to the Lord in worship? Why do we spend time in a pastoral prayer praising God, thanking God, interceding for other people to God? Why do we spend time reading from His Word, under, trying to understand His Word? Why do we do those kinds of things in worship? And the, the fundamental reason is because we find our salvation in Christ to be fundamentally a gift. God has given it to us. And you and I sit in this worship place every Sunday beneficiaries of a gift. We don't belong here. And we come here because we recognize that. It's the main reason why what's going on in America in worship, changing it from awe-inspired thanksgiving to God to entertainment-driven, is a travesty. I watched a video before I came over here. I should have included it in the keynote just so we could watch three minutes of it. It would make you nauseous. Over church, uh, the church is called Church by the Glades. And you can look it up on YouTube. They're, they're pretty proud of the fact that they've turned worship into a, what they call a club-like atmosphere. Where they have performers and entire team of artists that dance to songs they say secular and sacred. Britney Spears, Rihanna. They try to, they say, meet people where they are first and then take them into the sacred. We try to make it look like a rock concert. We promise you will not fall asleep in our church. It's nauseating. If your problem is fatigue in the church, you realize that is a you problem. That is nobody else. You are responsible for your own attention span. No one else is. It's you. That's your own heart being engaged. No one else is. Ezra, Nehemiah, open up the Old Testament and read it cover to cover. And the people are weeping. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God in a monotone voice. No inflection in his voice. He believed that would be sinful for him to inflect his voice in any way. There were no backs on the pews. If you fell asleep, you hit the floor. After reading in a monotone voice about an hour and a half long, we think, because a normal pace, uh, reading sinners in the hands of an angry God in a monotone voice would probably take you about an hour to an hour and a half to read. So about an hour to an hour and a half later, people are in tears, broken over their own sin. What changed? Was it the word of God that changed? Or was it the hearts of the people that changed? We are so driven by entertainment in our world that we see my attention span as your problem. You're supposed to keep my attention. And if you can't keep my attention, that's your fault. Do something different or I'll go somewhere else. It's a hard issue. Unless we're driven by worship, unless we're driven by grace, unless we understand that we don't belong here and he has graciously included us in, unless we are so enamored by the fact that he saved us, 
we'll never worship. Because what is there to worship? It's just worshiping me. Because I made a terrific choice in being here. Fundamentally, that is not what the Bible depicts salvation is. So, you can tell that to anybody. Um, (laughs) uh, Significantly here in the list that Andrew read so eloquently, Hebron is the last city uh, mentioned there in verse 31. And that seems to be really important. And there's a reason why that's really important. You'll see 2 Samuel 5, 5 is listed there as the place where David kept his capital for seven years and six months before he moved it to Jerusalem finally. So Hebron is really important, and the author of 1 Samuel, or the author of Samuel, is telling us, is kind of He's kind of cluing us in. Part of the reason why David was was able to get such quick access to the throne, Saul doesn't lose all of his children. David's got some competition, as it were, to the throne, but one of the reasons why David gained such quick access to the throne that we're going to see next week and then in the weeks that follow is uh, is, is his ingratiating himself toward the people in Judah, and so Hebron becomes his capital because he's obviously ingratiated himself to the people there. All right. Questions on David so far? In this part, Shannon. Um, at this point, do the people of Judah know that David is supposed to be the king? It appears so, yes. Most of them do. Okay. But we were never told when all of that happened. It may have just been kind of a... Yeah, it may have just sort of seemed obvious. you know. Or Samuel could have told a lot of people before he died. I, you know, I don't know. He obviously told... When he tells Saul, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong on this, but I think when he tells Saul coming up from the dead, like the, the, when he says, David's going to take your place, uh, that, that is the first time I think Samuel actually says that to Saul. But it, we get a hint earlier that, that Saul knew that David was also going to take over. So we're not sure how the word spread, but, but it did. Kirsten? Uh, we sure do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would be lying if I said right now I could grab hold of the person that would be the uh, who Amalek was. I'd have to. I'd have to dig back. And was this just like a, a raid that David saw an opportunity to get into, or was it because they're out, they're about to go into battle with the Philistines? Yeah, David and his men are not are not going into battle. Yeah, well, they basically saw Ziglag unprotected. Amalekites did. Saw it unprotected. David and his men were gone. And there were a lot of people there that were, not, that were not fighting men. And so they just saw it as an opportunity to take in their possession women and all the spoils of their city because uh, it was unguarded. And I, I, who knows why David actually did that. Uh, but he left the city unguarded, I guess, I suppose. And, and so he saw this as more of like a retaliation. I don't say retaliation. Maybe that's the right word. But getting back what was rightfully his. Stolen from him to begin with. Yep. Okay, so then we get to Saul's part of the story. And it's honestly, it's 31 is really short. So think of this. David runs to the Amalekites, and the Amalekites flee from in front of David. The However many men it was, a couple hundred men it was that fleed from David uh, and, and left, and then he killed everybody else. When we get to 31, we see the exact opposite thing taking place with the Israelites. Saul and his men go into battle, and Israel is the one that flees from the Philistines. Israel takes off running, and Saul (coughs) and his sons, Jonathan, namely Jonathan, uh, try to make the hasty retreat, and they can't. They actually get caught up in the battle, and... Saul sees that his time is coming short, his sons have died, and he looks to his armor bearer and he says, all right, go ahead and run me through and kill me. 
And the armor bearer's like, I ain't killing God. <laughs> I don't want that on me. And so he doesn't. So Saul takes his own uh, spear and falls on it and commits suicide rather than die by the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. Um, somebody read that, 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 4. So Saul falls upon his own sword and kills himself right there. And then subsequent to that, the, this is a, a route from beginning to end. Not only is the king dead, not only are the king, is the king's lineage, uh, for the most part, dead, but then the people actually see that all of this has taken place and saw all that they lost, and they abandoned their cities and their towns and gave them over to the Philistines. So this is a route from top to bottom. No way to explain it but that. It is a route from top to bottom. They abandoned their cities. They abandoned everybody. They even left the dead bodies of the king and his sons there on the field of battle. Just turned it all over the Philistines, and we'd rather survive, run, and give everything, their houses, everything to the Philistines. So the Philistines wake up the next morning. Hang on. All right. I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I skipped something here. Sorry. Uh, the next day, the Philistines uh, are perusing the battlefield, and they find the bodies of Saul and his sons. That's that blank that I missed. Found the bodies of Saul and his sons there on the field. And so, in their kindness... They cut off Saul's head from his dead body. Yeah, I say that sarcastically. They cut off the head of Saul right there on the field of battle, um, and they take his armor and they display it in their temple uh, in front of the goddess Ashtaroth. And uh, that's kind of a sign of like conquering. You'll remember uh, back in... in First Samuel, uh, it's probably about five or so, that they took the ark. The Philistines captured the ark and they put it in the temple to Dagon. You remember that? And that's when Dagon's statue falls over and his head falls off and all of those things. And then boils break out all over the people and they eventually just send the, send the ark on back, <laughs> which is a hilarious story. But um, here, it's basically a sign that they've conquered. It's, it's, it's the, the biggest sign that they've conquered. They're putting the armor of the fallen king in front of their God. And effect, effectively, that's a sign if the king is the one made in the image of God, which is the idea uh, in, in this time period. The king is made in the image of God. And to all the pagan cultures, not all humanity is made in the image of God. Only the king is. And so if the king is made in the image of God, he is God's son. Conquering the king is effectively conquering God. Ashtaroth then is, or Asherah, is the goddess that is most powerful and is certainly more powerful than the God of the Israelites because the king has fallen and therefore God himself has fallen on the battlefield. So they take the armor and they put it into the temple, which is sort of Asherah or Ashtaroth's spoils from war is that she has defeated their God. And so they pin the, uh, the armor inside the, the sanctuary, and then they take the bodies of Saul and his sons, and they pin them to the wall of Bet-Shean. Uh, Bet-Shean is a city that you can actually visit to this day. The ancient city of Bet-Shean is not a city that you'll actually see or really observe much of when you go there. But that city was built on top of by the Romans and built on top of by the Greeks and several other people. And it's one of the most well-preserved cities from about uh, 300 
AD that's available that we can actually uh, see today. You can walk on it. It was basically fallen by an earthquake and then covered over in dirt, and then it wasn't occupied again. And so one day somebody's kicking around in the dirt and just finds this city, and it's basically untouched from the day it fell by an earthquake. And so you get to walk down the streets of Bet Shean and look at what a city in 300s-ish uh, looked like. And so you see the columns and of the of the fortress fallen over by the earthquake. When they originally uncovered it, they found at the column of one of these, of the temple, a skeleton of a man holding on to the column like this. The column had fallen on top of him, and in his arm, he had a glass jar with coins in it, freshly minted coins. The suspicion is that when the earthquake happened, he went and grabbed his money held it close to him, and went and grabbed the column of the sturdiest thing that he thought was there as the whole earth is shaking. The column falls over and crushes him, and in the jar is newly minted coins, so when they pull, perfectly preserved under the dirt. So when they pulled out the coins, they saw the year that was stamped on them, and they knew what, ha- what, what year it happened. And so you walk down this city, and you can touch the columns, and they're all fastened in the place. You can go and actually... Uh, it sounds really bad. Sit in the latrine area where it was there, you know. Uh, you can, uh, do, there's all kinds of things. It's a perfectly preserved little city with little shops. They had little signs there and everything for what the shops were. Everything like that. It's really fascinating. James. Yeah, I was thinking about the man here. The uh, possibility of this man being related to the man at Mount St. Hill. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was going to take it with him. Look, if I go, I want my money with me, you know. I, I, I guess he doesn't want to get it buried under the rubble. The last thought was that he would die. But anyway, Bet Shean is, is, a, is, is a very interesting place. The Bet Shean that we know of today is not the city that Saul was pinned to the wall, but there is an area where you can go, which is where he would have been. This massive tall, tall hill that you can walk up on top of and you can see all, all across the, the modern ancient city of Bet, Bet Shean. And that area up there is the, is the, the city where... Um, uh, where there would have been a wall around it and where Saul would have been pinned up, and it overlooks everything. It's a huge, massive city, and I'll show you a picture later if you want to come up here and see it um, uh, on my phone. But, uh, but anyway, uh, really cool place, but they're, they're pinned to the wall. And so the people of Jabesh-Gilead find out that Saul has been pinned to the wall, and this is a disgraceful act where the Philistines have just kind of shamefully put him up against the wall and, he, and his sons as well. And they come in the middle of the night, and they burn the bodies of, of, of the men. They take them down off the wall, and then they bury their bones uh, out in Jabesh-Gilead. Now, what's the significance of Jabesh-Gilead? You remember? Dig back. Think really hard. What is it? What's that? Yeah, it probably shows there's some significance in connection to Saul with Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is his ancestress. All right, so remember, the, remember back at the end of the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with the Benjaminites committing an, un, an unbelievable act. And with a with a basically a concubine killing her and all of this kind of stuff, and uh, or, or or sorry the the um, I can't remember the name of the town anyway that they were in, but uh, but it was the, it was it happened to a Benjaminite who took his concubine in. They killed her and they chopped her body up and they you know sent it all over, and then uh, what was left of Benjamin after it was all over was. Uh, nothing. All of their men, uh, their men were mostly run off except for just a couple of hundred people. And then the women that they actually took as their wives to rebuild the population of Benjamin were the women from Jabesh Gilead. So Saul's female ancestor was from Jabesh Gilead. She was not, uh, not, a, not a Benjaminite. She was not a, um, yeah, she was, she was non-Benjaminite, essentially. She was a, a Jew, but not, not a Benjaminite. And so Saul was born out of that lineage. And so Saul returns home and is buried amongst non-Benjaminite people. That's not great, all right, uh, for you to not be buried amongst your people. That's, that's not great. And so uh, Saul returned home. He's, 
buried with non-Benjaminites, and, and that's just that's how his story ends. A very tragic, tragic conclusion um, to the story. But there's a couple of things that are really interesting parallels that are being drawn uh, here. You'll also remember that when Saul's reign began, Saul's reign began by delivering Jabesh from an invading army. He goes into Jabesh. Remember, he's behind the oxen, and they come and tell him that, uh, that the invading army has come in and is going to attack Jabesh, and he chops up his oxen and sends them to all the corners of Israel to mount up an army to fight, and they all come, and Saul ends up delivering Jabesh Gilead from, uh, fr- uh, from the, the hands of the enemy, and then the book ends with Jabesh's deliverance of Saul from the wall of the Philistines. So it's a, it's a parallel that's happening here. Um, one more parallel that's rather interesting. The book of 1 Samuel opens, the first section of the story opens with a family, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. It opens with the death, the death of these failed leaders, Eli and both of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, dying on the same day. And the book closes with Saul, who is also a failed leader, dying at the hands of the Philistines on the same day as his sons. Uh, on top of all that, the Philistines gathered at Aphek to fight uh, initially to gather together for the army for both um, Eli and for Saul uh, in the battle that ultimately ended Saul's life and ultimately ended Eli and Hophni and Phinehas' life. Um, so there's, there's clearly some imagery that's being drawn here by the author to show you that between the death of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and the death of another failed leader, Saul and his sons on the battlefield, there's rejection of God, treating the, the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a lucky charm that they can bring into their presence uh, to win battles. There is rejection of God's deliverer in Samuel, rejection of his sons that he's appointed to lead after him, failure to trust in God, usurp his will, ask for a king of their own accord, all of this ends up leading to their destruction, and the book ends the way it began. But the difference, when Hophni and Phinehas and Eli die, the Ark of the Covenant is in Philistine possession, and it's in their temple, and God delivers it himself. When Saul dies, a deliverer has already been chosen, and he's on the way. So David is going to be appointed uh, next week, which will be our last week before I go to Israel for, for I guess it will just be one week. I think. One Sunday will miss. Questions? Comments? Michael, when you, were, when you talk about uh, uh, putting the things in the, in the temple, what temple are you talking about? Um, so they, uh, they would have obviously had a temple or some sort of a a temple building there in Bet Shean that they pin the armor in um, uh, to the goddess Ash- Ashtaroth. They went to worship? Yeah. Is this yeah. A, a temple to our God? No, 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 no. This would have been. Just something yeah. Built for yeah. Ashtaroth, the Ashtaroth was, a, was a, 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 basically a goddess um, uh, that, and I, I believe it has a connection to Asherah, you'll see. From time to time, but um, they would have been they would have just there would have been several temples around in Philistine territory. What's that? Yeah, I think it was a goddess of fertility, and I want to say they, they, the stories get so mixed with all these gods. But I want to say the wife of Baal at one point is Asherah, and uh, but anyway, they would have had these temples all around the all around the place, and so every, basically every city would have had some sort of high place where they would have gone to worship. In fact, in Bet Shean, when you climb up on top of this place, there's kind of the ancient rocks of what used to be some sort of a temple that was there um, many, many years ago. But yeah, this would have been a pagan. You say temple, what comes to mind is, yeah, a 
Yeah. And I don't think of calling on you know, those kind of things, temple. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, there's going to be, uh, when, it, when we get into kings, things are going to get really, really confusing because, uh, yeah, so it's good, yeah, because uh, we'll, we'll be keeping track, in kings, we'll be keeping track of a lot of different things. Kings are going to rise and fall on how they tore down the high places or built them up. And the high places is another way of saying temples to foreign gods, okay, okay? pagan gods. So the, and they're high places because they're typically built up on a hill and they're, so that everybody can see them and stream to them, much like the temple in Jerusalem is, right? Um, so, but we'll have to keep track of that and we'll keep track of the kings and how, how they're judged based on their ability to tear them down or whether they build them up in some cases. And then also there's, when it gets to kings, there's prophets that we've got to keep track of. And then in 2 Samuel, we'll have to keep track of chronicles too. So it's not just 2 Samuel, but it's also Chronicles that opens up more or less with David's story. So there's lots of books in the Old Testament start coming into, coming into play that we have to start picking up on and, and keeping track of when we go. <laughs> one, of the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this particular study and walk through the Old Testament was because if you read it cover to cover, if you read the Old Testament cover to cover, start in Genesis and go all the way to Malachi, you're gonna, um, there's a lot of chronology that's going to be all kinds of crazy for you. And so what I, what I wanted to do is help us to see that the story is following really this narrative of kingship and God's kingdom that's being established even as early as Adam and, and actually goes all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. And, um, and this idea of temples is all the way from Garden of Eden all the way through Solomon's temple. Jesus is the temple, then we are the temple all the way to the end time temple in Revelation uh, and the new earth. And so that's important. That's a really important part as we establish not only the kingdom of God, but then how that kingdom is lived out in the temple of God. And then uh, so f- tracking all of those things is really important and understanding that in this kingdom, there's correction that he's bringing in through the prophets. And so keeping the prophets uh, in their timeline is really helpful to see that the, when you get to the major and minor prophets, they, they fit into this kingdom picture here. They're coming in at certain time periods to correct the kings and to, or in some cases to bring judgment upon the kings. So we will explore some timelines for sure along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, is it Psalm 70 something? 121. That's, I think, what he's preaching on this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Any other questions? Right. Um, as is the torn away from you, given to your neighbor or whatever. But nobody knew like that he was really going to be king. That's uh, true. Yeah. Jonathan knew that like clearly my father is like horrible, <laughs> and clearly you're not. You know, I mean like you're following the Lord's path. At some point, and it's not super clear in First Samuel, people become aware that David is going to be the next king, and he obviously is welcomed into Saul's court at first, and he's the he's the you know, military leader, and Jonathan recognizes pretty early on, I'm serving you, because you're obviously God's man. Um, some of that comes by the feet of Goliath, that people recognize that. He gains in notoriety, and, and he becomes more or less kind of famous uh, for what he does. And so, but it's, it's not super clear in First Samuel at what point everybody goes, all right, David's our guy. And I, and I don't think that's really going to be the case until a little bit further into Second Samuel, because there's going to be a point where he brings all the tribes together and the whole kingdom is united under Israel, right? Which is uh, David's unique uh, responsibility. It's carried on through Solomon, but Solomon's the one that loses it. 
And so, so there's a point at which David's really going to bring everybody together. So I don't know that it's necessarily important that all of the nation go, oh, David, because I don't think really all the nation was really behind Saul that much either. And they're kind of a little bit more divided than it might seem. I think the biblical text goes, here's Saul going into all these battles and everybody's with him. Uh, okay, but it's not all the fighting men of Israel. There's people that obviously are not part of the battle and probably people that are more or less couldn't care less about Saul. Um, that's not going to be true once David gets into his reign and begins to establish it. He's going to establish Israel as a powerhouse. Other questions? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word and how relevant it is to this day. Uh, may our hearts be patterned much like David's is, which is the desire of your spirit um, to change us into, to be worshiping people who desire nothing more than to come together as a body in awe of who you are, but in, in just being blown away by the fact that you have saved us and we don't deserve it. And we don't know why, for sure, other than you chose to set your love on us. And we are grateful. Conform our hearts then to be so grateful that the only thing we have left to do is worship. May we be so grateful that in our worship we desire other people to also know that salvation is for them too. And it can be had by grace through faith. Make us into that people as I know your desire is, in Jesus' name, amen.